beautiful day. Just, just a reminder that on March the 13th, all of you except Arizona and Hawaii are going to go on daylight savings time. So on March the 13th, this meeting will not change times unless you are in Arizona. If you're in Arizona, because I'm going to adjust my time so you don't have to. I'm going to start this meeting one hour earlier to give you a chance just to have that, that, uh, uh, that same time. Uh, but if you're in Arizona, this meeting on Saturday will start one hour later. Our evening meetings, Sunday through Friday, on March the 13th, will start one hour later unless you are in Arizona, and then they will be at the same time. So every other area, March the 13th, weekday meetings, one hour later, Saturday meetings, same time, unless you are in Arizona. We have been studying the doctor's opinion. And without the doctor's opinion, there's no book, there's no program, there's no nothing. Because without a clear definition of the disease, without a clear definition of what has been haunting us, there really is nothing for us to say about a program of action to, to alleviate the situation. And Dr. Silkworth does a beautiful job of illustrating for us that the disease is twofold, that it is a physical reaction that he calls the allergy. And the other side of it is the mental twist. And the mental twist drives us irresistibly into the food against our will most of the time in search of what? In search of relief from the intenable pain of not eating. And so we have a situation where the mind conspires to get us to eat the food and the body ensures that once the food is inside of us, we will eat more than we intended. It says in the doctor's opinion, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. What is that effect? That effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly upon us when we eat certain foods. We just feel good all of a sudden. There's just a feeling of calm a feeling that the world is okay, that whatever it is we're struggling with, whatever it is that is plaguing us and hurting us is gonna be okay. But only about nine seconds is the duration of that, of that effect, 10 seconds. And then what happens is the physical allergy takes over and we eat more than we had intended. And the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want. And it's just an endless, endless spiral of death. That there is nothing in this world that I can do that is of this world that is going to interrupt that cycle. No amount of discipline, no amount of money, no amount of sex, no amount of attention, no amount of poverty, being black, being white, being green, being yellow, being Jewish, being Gentile, being Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, being tall, being short, being gay, being straight. There is nothing that is of this earth that is going to alter this disease. I can't buy anything. I can't clamp down on my willpower. I can't clamp down on my discipline as I have been told my whole life as a child. Young man, if you had discipline, you'd pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And if you cared about your mother, you wouldn't eat that way. And I cared about my mother, but I still would rather have a Reese's peanut butter cup than live in the world the way I was feeling. If you cared about your father, you wouldn't eat that way, young man. If you had any self-respect, if you like yourself, if you think you're going to get a good job as a fat boy, you're mistaken. And none of those things made one bit of difference 
because I could not control my mind, nor could I control my body. The disease of compulsive overeating was upon me from the moment that I was born. And I watched people do the craziest things. When I was a little, little kid, just to show you my age, Art Linkletter, who most of you under the age of 40, you don't even know who he was. Art Linkletter had a show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And these little children would be on the show and they'd ask them ridiculous questions like, what do you think we should do about this? Or what do you think we should do about that? Or, and they didn't know, but they would give just the cutest answers. And you know, people say the darndest things about all these frothy emotional appeals. If you lose weight, I'll give you $100. If you lose weight, I'll do this, or I'll do that, or I'll juggle goldfish out my ear. And none of those things did anything to help me with this disease. Oh, there were times when I could diet down effectively, but those times were very short-lived. And I've told this story in here many times. I was on heavy-duty diet pills, heavy-duty amphetamines when I was nine years old. My Dr. Jacobson, Dr. Morad Jacobson, his office, I can see it now. He always used to give me a pink diet sheet. Why are all the diets pink? He would always send me home with a diet that was pink, even when I was like a five, six years old. But anyway, he put me on, he put me on diet pills. And then I lost a lot of weight on diet pills. But man, those diet pills make you nuts. Um, I get accused of this now. I would like say the same thing 400 times. I couldn't stop myself from saying the same thing. You sleep about 15, 20 minutes a month. Uh, but you don't eat, you don't eat. But the pounding in your head, I can feel it now in the temples of my head. It would just ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. I mean, this heavy-duty amphetamine, and I'm nine years old, but I will tell you, it killed my appetite. It almost killed me, but it killed my appetite. And then Marilyn Monroe died when I was nine or 10 or whatever the hell I was. And some of the information on these amphetamines started coming back and they switched me from a pink pill to a blue pill with exactly the same results, exactly the same kind of results. But um, they had to put black bunting on the Red Hot Ranch on Devon, and they had to put black bunting on GGO's Pizza because I wasn't going in there and eating that stuff because I was under the spell of these pills. And uh, so it was, it was quite interesting. Okay. Bill Wilson. We're going to talk about Bill Wilson this morning. And Bill Wilson is a man, was a man, or is a man. His life is forever. He will live forever. Bill Wilson will really never die. And usually I have cartoon characters or I have uh, little silly Charlie Brown kind of things or uh, Sesame Street characters behind me. But this morning I have Bill Wilson kind of looking down on us. And this is a speech he made in Atlanta, Georgia in 1954. And I like this particular uh, picture of Bill Wilson. Uh, I really like it. There's another one. I'll switch to it just for a minute here. I really like this one too. It's Bill Wilson pulling up and telling the guy, just get in the car. And I think I, yeah, here it is. I like this one too. Just get in the car. And, uh, you know, I thought the first step for a while was shut up and get in the car, you know? So uh, the bottom line is that's him. He's smoking a cigarette, which he was a chain smoker throughout most of his life. I think most men in, in, in that generation smoked cigarettes because a lot of this was just not known. It was just not a known thing. And so they all smoked. So I'm going to go with just get in the car. He didn't want to hear your nonsense anymore. Get in the car. And Bill Wilson's story 
is here, right in the front of the book. And it wasn't originally here. He wrote his story and he wanted it in the back with the rest of the personal stories. But when a man was brought in to edit the book, whose name was Tom Uzzle, Tom Uzzle and Janet Blair edited the book pre-publication. They were brought in in November of 38 and the book was printed on April the 10th, 1939. But Tom Uzzle was the one who moved Bill's story to the front of the book. And the reason that he wanted Bill's story in the front of the book was he felt that it was very vital to have a story like this to identify in with. And this Tom Uzzle was 100% correct. And it's very, very important because as we study Bill's story, as we're going to do, we're going to see many of the classic pieces of information coming alive. And we're gonna look at Bill's story and we're gonna identify with him. And I will see in reading his story that I think the way he thought and I ate the way he drank. And what we're gonna be looking for is the progression of the disease and in every paragraph in the first eight pages of this story, we're going to see the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal, although Bill won't die from alcoholism. But we're going to see the progressive nature of the disease. And in every paragraph, we're going to see this disease getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And we're going to see, although we won't see it today because we're not going to get up to page eight, no way. But we're going to see that the story of Bill Wilson is clearly delineated, clearly divided into two distinct sections. The first eight pages of Bill's story are going to be about Bill's plunge into alcoholism and the second eight pages, which we won't get to for a while, are going to be how a recovery was affected therefrom by what he did from a group of people practicing first century Christianity to the very best of their ability. And they were called the Oxford group. So we're going to study Bill's story. But no study of Bill's story is complete without some backstory. And Bill was born on November the 26th, 1895 in East Dorset, Vermont. Very small town in Vermont. I've been there. And if you've never been there, I suggest strongly that you go. There are three or four pilgrimages that I'm sending you on and you must go. The first one being Akron, Ohio. You should go to 855 Ardmore Street in Akron, Ohio, because this is where our way of life really begins in Akron on Ardmore Street, where Dr. Bob and Ann Smith lived with their two children, Robert Jr. and Susan. And this is something that you should see because this is really the beginning of our way of life. The second pilgrimage that I wanna send you on is Stepping Stones in Katona, New York, Bedford Hills, New York. You should go and see where Bill and Lois lived in their later years. And there are many, many amazing archives, amazing things to see. We're gonna be talking about Bill's violin. We're gonna be talking about Lois's piano. We're gonna be talking about the kitchen table. And I have a picture of myself at the kitchen table that Ebby and Bill will sit at. And these are things <clears throat> that you should see. They will have great meaning to you as a person who follows our way of life. Another place that I'm definitely going to send you to, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that, is the AA archives in New York City. And that's definite. And you should take a, a trip past 
293 Central Park where Towns Hospital was, even though it's an apartment building now, you should still see it. And the other one that I would recommend, it'll take you three minutes. Go, if you're in New York City anyway, go out to Brooklyn and go to 182 Clinton Street. And imagine, if you will, the people that have walked up and down those stairs from Fitz Mayo to Dr. Bob, to Bill, to Lois, to Dr. Silkworth, to, to Jimmy Burwell and Hank Parkhurst. And just imagine, if you will, all the characters in our drama that have walked up and down those stairs at 182 Clinton Street before God closes your eyes, get out there. It will have great meaning for you. I stood there fresh skinned and glowing and my friends took my picture and then I took theirs. And it's a very, even though it's a silly thing, it's a, it's a absolutely ridiculous thing. It's very, very moving. All right, enough about that. Okay, Bill Wilson was born to two parents who uh, hated drink, warned him not to drink. Uh, his his mother and father, uh, his father was 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 an alcoholic, as was his grandfather was an alcoholic. Gilman Wilson was an alcoholic, as was his father. And Emily Griffith was Bill's mother. And Emily Griffith and and Gilman Wilson warned Bill and warned Dorothy. Dorothy was Bill. Dorothy will marry Dr. Leonard Strong. And Dorothy Wilson is Bill's little sister. And when Bill was 10 years old, Bill's father's alcoholism will blow up the family and his mother and father will get divorced. Now, I want you to remember that all of us are people of our times. And in 1906, divorce was quite scandalous. Today, it's very commonplace. Unfortunately, I am divorced. I never thought I would ever say I am a divorced man. It never occurred to me that that was a, even a possibility. I just assumed we'd be married for the rest of our lives and shows you what I know. But I'm not much of a fortune teller, I guess, am I? Which, which is why I probably don't make a lot of money gambling. But the bottom line is I am divorced and I never saw that coming. But in 1906, that was quite scandalous. It's quite scandalous. And Bill always felt very ashamed of the fact that he came from a divorced family and it bothered him tremendously. And it gave him a sense of not being like the other kids because the other kids came from nuclear families and he and Dorothy did not. And they were raised by their grandparents. They were raised by the Griffiths and the Griffiths raised Bill and Dorothy in their home. And you can see it, you can go in it, you can go to it. If you go to East Dorset, Vermont, you will also see that ironically, Bill Wilson, our hero, was actually born in an inn and tavern that they ran. And so our hero, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was actually born in a tavern. Isn't that kind of funny? That's kind of ironically funny. And the bottom line is, is that um, Bill Wilson it was a very determined child. He was a very focused child, a very smart boy. He passed the Edison test. Now, today you tell people you passed the Edison test. They, they don't know what the heck that is. Thomas Edison gave a test to boys, little boys, young boys, to display their scientific and their mathematical uh, skills, their acumen in math and science. And if they passed the test, he would consider them for an apprenticeship. And Bill Wilson passed the Edison test, which was very difficult to do, but he opted not to apply for an apprenticeship because he knew that Thomas Edison over at Westinghouse would always be the number one man. And Bill wanted to be the number one man in his outfit. And this was a very big thing with him, even at the beginning of his life. 
And Bill went to live with his grandparents. And when he was in their home, he went upstairs and he found a violin. And he practiced and practiced and practiced and worked very hard and became an accomplished violin player. So much so that he became first violin at his grammar school's orchestra. And then he went up there and he found a baseball glove and worked tirelessly at baseball. And he became the starting shortstop and he became the co-captain of the team of his grammar school, which was Burr and Burton Academy. At that time, it was Burr and Burton Seminary. It was a private school, grandma and grandpa Griffith believed that Bill should go to Burn Burton in Manchester, Vermont, rather than go to the public schools in East Dorset, Vermont. And Bill was at Burn Burton Academy. And one of his young friends on that baseball team was a guy by the name of Edwin Ebby Thatcher. And we're going to be talking about Ebby Thatcher, not so much today, but trust me, we will be talking about Ebby Thatcher in the time to come. He's going to be a major player in what will become Alcoholics Anonymous. He'll be a major player in our lives, too, because of the things that he introduced into Bill's life. And Bill will pass them and it'll get passed to us. Um, Bill also, when he went to live with the Griffiths, he read in a book that only an Aborigine in Australia could fashion a boomerang that would actually come back to you. And he wasn't having this. He cut a big piece of his headboard off of his bed with a saw. And if you go upstairs to his room and you, they go with you, they make sure you don't take any souvenirs. They go up there with you, but you can see where he cut the headboard. You can see the boomerang and you can see his little desk where he did his homework and you can see his bed and see his room. And uh, they, but they, they make sure you don't take any souvenirs with you. They go up there with you. You can't go up there by yourself. But anyway, it's quite a sight. Uh, and it's just down the street from where he was born and just down the street from where he was raised, less than a half a block walk. But anyway, he continued to work on this boomerang and Grandpa Griffith was in the backyard and Bill tosses this boomerang and it actually came back and almost took grandpa's head off and it just missed him. It would have really hurt him. It just missed him. And he ducked down and, and, and he was okay. But Bill was very, very determined. Bill also suffered from an anxiety disorder. Bill had an inferiority complex and he had an anxiety disorder. And something happened in Bill's life when he was 17 years old. Now this was prior to him dating Lois or being with Lois. The love of Bill's life <clears throat> was Bertha Bamford. She was the love of his life and Bertha, she had to go to New York City for what was described to Bill as a routine surgery. And she was 17 years old, as was he, and she died. She died. And Bill fell in at age 17 in the first of his many, many depressions. And Bill would suffer from depression his entire life. He was, a de he was clinically depressed. He will be under the care of different psychiatrists, different therapists throughout his life to treat his depression. And he had anxiety and he had an inferiority complex. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? So far, so good. Now, I don't have depression, but I have all these various feelings of inadequacy. Remember, I grew up as a fat kid and I was an object of ridicule too. And I, you know, I always felt different from other people because they could eat a half a hamburger and be done. 
they came from families where the parents were young and American and my parents were neither young and my father was certainly not an American. So I always felt like they had something up on me that I just wanted. And if I could only be more like them, if only I could be like them, everything would be okay. And I could never be like them. And so I always felt that emptiness inside of me. Bill's story starts on page one in the first printing, first edition. The doctor's opinion was on page one. Now I'm just gonna give you a little bit more history and then we're gonna get into the story and we're gonna go into a lot of history once we hit the story. But the doctor's opinion in the original printing of the first first uh first edition big book was on page one. Why was it moved? The reason that the doctor's opinion was moved is to keep with the integrity. Now that would give us 12 chapters, right? Because there's 11 chapters now, but there'd be 12 chapters and 12 steps. Is it odd or is it God? Well, I don't know. I think it's God. I don't think it's odd at all. But the reason that the doctor's opinion was moved was because Dr. Silkworth was not an alcoholic and they wanted to keep the integrity of the book being a book that was written for alcoholics and by alcoholics. And as Dr. Silkworth was not an alcoholic, his letter, his opinion was moved to the Roman numeral section of the book. But without Dr. Silkworth's opinion, there's nothing to build on. There is nothing. There is no program. There is no book. There is no nothing. Little some other time, we're going to talk about the book, the book project. We're going to talk about fundraising for that. We're not going to do that today so much, but we're going to schedule that at some point, maybe during the summer we'll take a departure and we're gonna talk about the history and the fundraising that they did. And there were three things that they wanted to do. They wanted to write a book. They wanted to start a chain of hospitals. See, it was very hard to get an alcoholic in the hospital in those days. Most hospitals did not want alcoholics. Alcoholics, A, didn't listen to what the doctors said and B, they also didn't pay their bills. And a lot of hospitals didn't want them. Charlie Towns at the Towns Hospital would most often demand that these guys, that when they came in, that they paid their stay in front. Or if they didn't pay their stay in front, he wanted guarantees. He wanted a guarantee that that was going to get paid for. Because remember, Charlie Towns, he needed to make money too. And at the Towns Hospital, that was not a city hospital. That was not a charitable endeavor. That was a for-profit hospital. And it opened in 1905 and closed in 1964. But it remains today one of those things that is very, very critical in our development. Very important. I don't want to get too historical on that stuff today, but maybe we'll schedule a time during the summer where we'll talk about there were three things that they wanted to do. Start a chain of hospitals and have a core of missionaries going around the country proselytizing Alcoholics Anonymous. And Dr. Bob, he was gonna be in charge of the hospitals and Bill Wilson was gonna be in charge of the missionaries. And there was one other thing that they wanted to do and that was write a book. And the, the society as it was then in Akron, and in New York, I said the society, I didn't say AA, there was no AA yet. They were just the drunk squad of the Oxford group. New York broke out in 37 and Akron broke away in 39. But they were not supportive of <clears throat> the hospital idea. They said, this is gonna create a professional class. This is gonna create the paids and the not paids. This is gonna damage us. And they were not supportive of, of the uh, missionaries. 
Uh, they, they just did not support this. And they just barely, just barely supported the book. And there was a lot of open hostility in Akron for the writing of the book. A lot of people in Akron did not support the writing of this book. They just thought it was a money-making scheme by Bill Wilson and Hank Parkhurst in New York, and they wanted nothing to do with it. All right. Let's go into Bill's story and let's see what we have. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. Plattsburgh is a city in upstate New York. Vassar College, I believe, is there. I should have checked on that before the session. I'm pretty sure, though, that my brain is giving me good information. I think Vassar College is in uh, Plattsburgh, New York. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. And we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. He's in the army, World War One, not World War Two. World War One. He's oh. in Plattsburgh. Somebody's unmuted. He's in Plattsburgh and they're yucking it up and they're having a good time and there's lots of camaraderie. And despite the warnings, well, I'll let him tell you. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. Over there is a song, and it is a song denoting World War I. You've all heard the song over there. It's one of the famous marches. Uh, I believe that it was written by John Philip Sousa, but I could be wrong. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. Notice he doesn't say I was very thirsty. Notice he doesn't say I wanted a drink. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. Remember, we talked about how the problem is not liquor or food. Liquor or food is the solution to the problem. The problem is the buildup of human emotions and we lack power over those emotions. So he's very lonely and again, turns to, to alcohol. How many thousands and thousands of gallons of ice cream and pizzas and sandwiches and you name it, did I eat? out of loneliness. And the lonelier I got, the fatter I got. The fatter I got, the lonelier I got. The lonelier I got, the fat. You see where we're going with this. And one of the things that this disease does really well is it isolates you from friends and family and support. And the first thing that this disease will do is isolate you. All abusers isolate their, um, their, um, their victims. They isolate their victims. Okay, we landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll on an old tombstone. Now, Winchester Cathedral is going to move Bill Wilson. He's going to see this tombstone. This tombstone marks the grave of a man named Thatcher. A little later on, we're going to talk about a man named Thatcher. But here's what he reads. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Now, when they're talking about pot, oh, I was just notified that Vassar is not in Plattsburgh, it's in Poughkeepsie. So please forget everything I said about the college. It's in Poughkeepsie. Okay, sorry, I had the wrong, I knew it was a P town in New York. I was just, it had the wrong one there, okay. But when they talk about pot, they're not talking about weed, they're not talking about marijuana, they're talking about beer. And the way that they drank beer in England in those days, because this man died hundreds of years prior, 
the the way that they drank beer was in pint pots and quart pots. And it was considered extremely bad manners to sit and drink. You didn't sit and drink. You stood and drank. And in the inn, in the saloon, there would be a bar that the guys could lean on. And that's where the term bar comes from. And if you look at a bar stool today, it is always raised above the level of a kitchen chair, a dining room chair, a living room chair, as an homage to those days when it was considered extremely rude to sit and drink. And it was pint pots, and quart pots. And when the guys would get a little too tipsy <clears throat> and they'd start to get a little rowdy, the barkeep would say, hey, watch your pints and quarts over there. And in the early 1700s, late 1600s, when that expression of watch your pints and quarts came over here to the colonies, that's where we get the expression, watch your P's and Q's over there. So that's how watch your P's and Q's comes into our language. See, we give you everything here. We give you a little uh, geographical history of universities in America. We'll give you a little Yiddish. We'll give you a little etymology. This is a very full service big book study here this morning. So we will not let you go without lots and lots of useless, absolutely unattached information that means nothing and is worthless to you, but we make sure that we cover it in detail. We make sure that we cover everything in detail so you can amaze your friends with useless, absolutely worthless information. Okay, ominous warning, which I failed to heed. So he's looking at the grave of a guy named Timothy Fetcher who drank himself to death. And he starts remembering his father and the divorce. His father went on a business trip, business trip, and never came back. His grandfather was an alcoholic. It ransacked their life. He's been warned from the time he was a little boy not to drink liquor. And he's looking at this grave and it did something to him. We're gonna come back to this later. Not today, later, later, later. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. 22 and a veteran of foreign wars. I went home at last. This is 1917. I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with utmost assurance. Make note in your mind of how absolutely confident Bill is. Because we're going to see not just the progression of his drinking, but we are going to see the progression of the disease that Bill Wilson's attitudes about life will deteriorate as his drinking increased. We will see how his positive attitude will turn to a negative attitude. His ideas about who he is, his ideas about life will deteriorate and putrefy as his disease progresses. Make note of this paragraph. We're going to be referring to it later on, not so much today, but in the weeks to come, we are going to be talking about this paragraph. Page two, top of the page, page two. I took a night law course and obtained employment as investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd prove to the world I was important. Make note of that. He still wants to prove to everybody that he's important. And because of the progression of the disease, he is going to deteriorate 
and the progression of the disease will be such that he no longer thinks of himself as worthy of life. And that's what this disease does for you, to you. That's what this disease does to you. When I was a teenager, I would have rather died than lived. When I was a kid in my 20s, I didn't want to live in this world. I saw no purpose to it. I knew I couldn't live with the food. I knew I couldn't live without the food. All my friends were dating and having sex and going out and getting married and starting businesses and getting jobs. And I was dealing with stuff that just took me right out of the ballgame, right out of the ballgame. Let's continue. My work took me about Wall Street and little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Now, Bill will eventually pass his bar exam and he will become an attorney, but he will never practice law. But Bill does not say I failed. He says I nearly failed. And he will graduate as an attorney. But as I said, he will never practice law. But Bill Wilson is feeling something that I can identify with because from the time I was a child, a young child, this disease made every decision for me. It decided who I could be and who I could not be, where I could go and where I could not go, who I was and who I wasn't. This disease had me by the neck and it did not let me go. This disease was an unmerciful terrorist in my life and it pulled me through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. There was no mercy in this disease. There was no, I'm gonna teach you a Yiddish word, Rachmanis. And what does Rachmanis mean? It means mercy. This disease hasn't got Rachmanis on anybody. It doesn't care how many people love you. It doesn't care how many people you love. It doesn't care that you're brilliant or beautiful or both. It doesn't care how accomplished you are. This disease will strike you down and in the cruelest possible way, rip from you your will to live, rip from you any self-dignity, rip from you self-respect and make you and cast you about as an object of ridicule, an object of disdain, an asexual disdain, disdainable person and people will blame you because if you had a shred of dignity or a shred of discipline, you wouldn't be that fat. And they have no idea that everything you're doing is just throwing yourself together so you could go out into the world and they have no idea how difficult that is for us because it's easy for them. <clears throat> Let's continue. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. Oh, I forgot to say one thing. Can I relate to Bill Wilson's thinking? You bet I can. Can I relate to him? You bet I can. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. Lois is now starting to get on him. He has interviews. He has jobs. He's getting drunk. People are starting to talk. Whenever anybody wanted to talk to me, I knew it wasn't about baseball. I knew it wasn't about the weather. I knew what it was about. I knew what it was about. It was about my weight. That was the subject du jour for decades of my life was look how fat you are. It disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, 
that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. What is the first victim of addiction? It is the truth. The first thing that goes out the window when any addiction is practiced is honesty. You cannot drink on the truth. You cannot eat on the truth. And he's lying to Lois and lying to himself that the most majestic thoughts of this guy and that guy were conceived when drunk. Hogwash. 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 He's lying to Lois and she's a good little Al-Anon. And in 1950, she and Ann Bingham will form a group called Al-Anon. But she's a good little Al-Anon and she wants to believe everything her wonderful husband's telling her. So she believes it and he pats her on the head and he says, don't worry, Lo, everything will be okay. And she says, okay, Bill. But we're going to find out that that's not going to last forever, that there's an expiration date on that library book, too. And we're going to find out a little later on that that's going to come back to bite him in the toughest. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang, there's that word, and all but cut me to ribbons living modestly. My wife and I saved $1,000. Now, I want to put something into a little bit of a historical perspective for you. We are talking about the time period around 1919. $1,000 may not mean a lot to you. I primarily carry two credit cards, one from the big box store up the street. And I only carry that one because it's got my picture on it. And I've got, uh, you got to carry it or you can't go in there. They check you when you come in there. You, you got to carry their card. And I have another one from one of the airlines so I can get a bunch of miles on there when I spend money. And I have credit cards that have limits many times that $1,000. And most of you do too. But $1,000, just to put it in perspective for you, in 1919, you could get a brand new house in Chicago for about $1,400, $1,600. I'm not talking about a schlocky house in a Chazer neighborhood. I'm talking about a very nice house in a decent neighborhood with a white picket fence, with a backyard and everything else that goes with it. You could get two, not one, two new cars for $1,000. The Model A Ford brand new off the showroom floor was $495. So if you bought two of them, you get $10 change. So $1,000 is a lot of money. Okay, let's continue. But let's understand that this roaring 20s, which is that post-World War I bump that the economy is getting is going to be the largest and most prolific bump in the economy that it will ever see. Most of the country after the Civil War, south of the Mason-Dixon line, was in complete anarchy. And the post-World War II bump is very good. And, but the post-World War I bump is going to catapult us into a period of time called the Roaring Twenties, when everything was flowing well. Let's see where we go. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and management, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. Let's talk about what's going on here because it's important. At this period of time, 1919 to 1929, October of 1929, we have the greatest period of prosperity that the United States has ever experienced. 
And stocks, if you invested in them with no knowledge at all whatsoever, most of these stocks would have a great rise. If you could get in on about a 10% margin, you would make money. And Bill Wilson was very, very smart, very, very smart. He realized that what goes up is going to come down. And he goes to Wall Street and he says to these guys, because remember, Bill Wilson was not a stockbroker. That is how he self-describes. He was not. He was a New York City stock speculator who made his living selling his opinion to people who bought it. And he, cut, he got cut in for a piece of the pie, a piece of the puzzle. Okay. Now, he is saying to these guys, hey, we need more information on these companies. And he, they said, oh, just shut up, Wilson. You're making all this money. What are you hocking me in China for? Hocking me in China really means banging on my tea kettle. But what hock me in China really means is you're nagging the crap out of me about this again, sending you out. And I don't want to do that. He's, he's, but Bill's cunning, baffling, and powerful too. And he goes, now, how does he get Lois to go with him? He makes Lois a promise that if she will go with him on this crazy endeavor, what won't he do? He won't drink. So the good little Alanon quits her job, interior decorator. She quits her job and she goes with him in the motorcycle and she packs her stuff and she bundles up. You can see pictures on the internet of her and him on the Harley Davidson. And the only reason that she uh, uh, agreed to this was because he agreed not to drink. And what did we say is the first victim of compulsive behavior, addictive behavior? It's the truth. He's lying. Let's see where we go from there. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. <clears throat> I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole Eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. He is sending in these reports. He's sending them in and they are realizing, hey, the drunk guy from Vermont is right. This is wonderful information. This is fantastic information. Hey, take an option. Here's a job. Here's this. Leaves him with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. He's making doctor money now. He's making surgeon money now. They're moving to, Walt, to uh, Park Avenue. There was a piano that you can see in Stepping Stones. The next time you're in the Vision for You convention, there's two conventions I recommend. The birthday in uh, out of Los Angeles, it's on Zoom now. Hopefully it won't be, but or hybrid, but it's on Zoom now, but it emanates out of Los Angeles. It's always in the middle of January. It's, why is the birthday such a, a convention that I recommend with such high regard? Because they take the time to make sure that the people speaking have chops to do so. They don't put a bunch of nourish kite up there. They take the time and it's a beautifully run convention. It's very well organized. You know, sometimes you go to some of these conventions, you wait 45 minutes just to get your packet. But the, the, the uh, birthday runs like a top. The, the person at the, top of the, at the top of the committee makes sure that everything spins like a top. It's just really incredible. And the birthday, they, it's very quality, the sharing. And the other convention is the Vision for You convention in Newark, New Jersey, which please God, let us be at sometime soon. 
But these are great conventions. Why are they such great conventions? Because the people up there have the chops and they're well-run conventions, extremely good. Now, why am I talking about conventions? The reason that I'm talking about conventions is, and now I almost forgot. Okay. Oh, all right. When you go to New York and you go to 182 Clinton Street, as I told you to do, that's on your bucket list, 182 Clinton Street, you see where they live, but he's living on Park Avenue now. And you can see the piano and this big crane is lifting up this piano and bringing it into their apartment. And he's buying her fur coats and he's buying her dresses from the finest stores in New York. And he's living the high life. He's living the Viva Loca, right? He's living the crazy life. He's drinking, but it's working for him so far. But remember, the narrator told us that it's a progressive disease. And the narrator told us that it's going to chop you down. And maybe for a while it might be working for him, but oh boy, there's an anvil up ahead with his name on it. Remember anvils? They're the thing that Wiley Coyote always got dropped on his head by the, by the roadrunner. Okay, that's gonna come back to bite him, but he's buying pianos and he's buying fur coats and he's buying dresses for his wife and he's buying the finest suits Things are going well. Let's see where we go from there. We don't have much time. Oh, yeah. Hilaria, I can't believe what time it is. Okay. We're just going to cover the next paragraph because this paragraph is so vital that when I, when I go on, I haven't gone on the road in two years, but when I used to do a lot of big book studies, we would concentrate on this paragraph for a long time because there's so much in it. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont, never had a pot or a window to throw it out of. Here's the kid from East Dorset, Vermont, who came from divorce. Here's a kid who has the inferiority complex. Here's the kid, and he's in New York, and he is looking around, and he says, I had arrived. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? Yes. My judgment and ideas were followed by many, many to the tune of paper millions. So there are people who are investing millions of dollars based on his opinion. Can you imagine what that must have done for his ego. Can you just imagine that you are whatever it is you do, whatever it is you are, what be you, whatever. And people look to the way you do something as a standard, as the cardinal rule. Can you imagine what that would do for your ego? And people are saying to each other, wait a minute, Bill said that that's not such a good move. Oh, if Bill says it, we better stop, look, and listen. Can you imagine? Millions of dollars are getting invested on his opinion. Wow. The great, by judgment, of, the great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places, <clears throat> excuse me, uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. Here's the guy that's lonely. Here's the skinny guy from Vermont, the lanky, skinny guy. Look behind me. He's in the car saying, get in the car, shut up and get in the car. But the bottom line is here he is in the Big Apple. He's got a Park Avenue address. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got it all. People are coming to him. They want to rub elbows with him. They want to be close to him. Now, next week, we're going to pick this up. And we're going to start to see that Bill has reached the top of the roller coaster in this paragraph. 
I call this paragraph the top of the roller coaster paragraph, because what's going to happen now is he is going to begin a descent into alcoholism and madness, and the world will get changed because of it. So next week, we're going to continue, and we're going to continue with this very page, and we're going to start next week with my drinking assumed. So I'm going to, before I turn this back over to Nancy or to Maria or whoever, I'm going to just ask you to follow a couple of things. Number one, no math questions, none, no algebra, no geometry, nothing. Number two, nobody ask a question, please, that asked one last week until all the people that did not ask one last week have been exhausted. And I just want you to remember next week, same time, same bat station, but May, March the 13th, this meeting will stay the same, but all of our evening meetings, all of our evening meetings will begin one hour later. Now you have some assignments to do though, right? You have an assignment to go to 182 Clinton Street. You have an assignment to go to Katona, to Bedford Falls, Bedford Hills, not Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls is from uh, the movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Bedford Hills. Um, and you've got an assignment to go to Akron and you have an assignment to go to, um, where else? Oh, the AA archives in New York. So I want all that done by this time next week. So you better get on your horse, contact your travel agent and start going, okay? All right, and also the birthday and the newer convention for vision. Those are on your radar because I want to see you there either in